throughout scripture, we see God using ordinary people like you and me to do crazy, extraordinary things. Many times God places them in circumstances where they are way above their head. They seem completely ill-equipped to do what God is asking them to do. And that is exactly what we're studying through the sermon series called Unlikely Heroes, Even Me. Because we want to challenge ourselves that those people in the Bible were no different than you and I. Ordinary people placed in extraordinary circumstances and placed there for a reason to step up and do something significant for God. The first person we studied in this series was Esther. We saw this exiled Jew and orphan girl. God used her to save his people from extermination. And we saw through her life that God has a plan for our life. He's created you to do something. He's placed you where you are for such a time as this. But we also saw in there that Satan has a plan for your life also. And Satan's plan for your life is to derail you from accomplishing what God has called you to do. And that leaves us with the third point is that we all have a decision to make. We're either going to follow God's plan for us or we're not, which is ultimately Satan's plan. And the second time we were together, we looked at the life of Jonathan. And Jonathan displayed for us this, the, this, 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 the character of what it means to be a true and faithful friend to somebody. And when we are a true and faithful friend, that we can actually serve and be an unlikely hero in their life as they come through their, their walk along with Jesus. And we learned uh, several things in that lesson. We learned that to, to be a true and faithful friend, that we cannot be selfish or jealous, right? As a true and faithful friend, we have to have our friends back in difficult situations. We have to defend them when others make false claims. We have to be a confidant, speaking truth and accepting truth in that relationship. We have to help them work through their troubles, our friends, through difficult times. And when they find themselves troubled, we need to empathize with them. And we need to walk alongside of them. And that's what Jonathan modeled for us. Last week, we looked at the life of Ruth. And Ruth, through her faith, her compassion, and her love, right? God demonstrated that what? God blesses obedience. Three words. That God's placed us in our circumstances and all we can do is take one step. Just take one step to him, one step closer to him. And God blesses each and every one of those steps. And he will provide for all the steps that come after that. And today that brings us to our fourth unlikely hero. And that guy's name is Gideon. So we're going to go back to the Old Testament in the book of Judges. Start at the beginning with Genesis. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. Turn to chapter 6. As you do that, let me just set a little bit of context. I mentioned last week after Joshua died, the, the Israel, Israel and the Israelites went due south. Things went bad in a hurry. If you remember, Joshua told them, we did a lot of work here, but you gotta go in and you gotta clean up everything that's left. You gotta get out all these idols, you gotta get out the Amorites, the Canaanites, you gotta get rid of all these things. And they didn't do that. 
And what ultimately happening is ended up falling into a pattern of sin, a pattern of worshiping the God of Baal, and they ultimately ended up turning their back on God. And when they did, God sent judgment against them. And ultimately, the Israel would cry out for help, and then God would send in his mercy a deliverer or a judge to help them get out of the mess that they've created for themselves. The sad thing is, is that was not a one-time event. That happened 12 times over in the 330 years between Joshua and Samuel. 12 times God would rescue them. This, this pattern of disobedience, judgment, repentance, and deliverance. God, in his kindness and patience, 12 times over again, he rescued them. And the first four judges that we see that God used were Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, and Deborah were the first four that he used. And after Deborah, God worked through Deborah, Israel had peace for 40 years. They enjoyed peace. So as we look at the beginning of the story, we're going to see that this starts the fifth cycle of disobedience right out of the chute in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. Let's read the first six verses together. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Now the Midianites have trampled all over the Israelites. How long did it say? Seven years. For seven years, the Israelites put up for this. They had no food. They killed the livestock. They're living in caves. They're living on the clefts of the hill. For seven years, they were tortured by these people until they cried out for God. My question is, why did they wait seven years? What took them so long? You know, it's easy to, to kind of look into the story, into those circumstances in hindsight and ask that question. You would think that those people would remember their ancestors, right? They, they came up out of Egypt and, and God parted the Red Sea. They marched around the walls of Jericho and the walls fell. And if they can't remember that far back, what about Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah? That when they cried out, God answered. Why did they wait seven years? You know, and it's easy to look at the circumstances of others, like the Israelites here, or you and me, for example, and say, you know what, I'm in the midst of something. We get somebody in our life saying, yeah, you know what, you should rely on God. That would be a good thing to do. You should pray. I'll pray for you, as a matter of fact. But in this midst of your family and the school situation, you should rely on God. But how come when it comes to us in our personal lives, why is that so hard for us to do? 
We try everything in our human power to fix our situation, to fix our marriage, to fix our finances, to fix our family, to fix my issue with my neighbors, whatever it happens to do. We try this and we wrangle this and we argue and we contort and we do all these things. And then finally, when we're at our wits end, then we say, oh, God, you, you deal with it. I can't deal with it anymore. I, I can't do it anymore, God. You take it now. And that's what the Israelites did. Seven years, they were pounded into the ground before they turned to God. And that's an example for you and I that don't be pounded into the ground for days and weeks and months. God is standing there, willing to help you. We just have to go to him in our, situ in our situations. And we think, you know, we are part of what we do in our life you know, that every path that we take is a path that is specially created by God in our life for him to shape us, for him to mold us, for him to lead us, for him to rely, for us to rely on him, right? The pain and the difficulties in our life, they're just part of the deal. Proverbs 3, 11, 12 says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now I'm gonna give you six things that I want you to take away from today and this is gonna be the first one that in our difficulties, in our tough time, God uses those to get our attention. And our part of the deal that's gonna happen, we can't wait seven years to call out to him. We need to be different. We need to go out immediately to God and say, God, I'm in a tough situation. Please help me through this. Okay? All right, so we haven't even met Gideon yet. So now we're off to meet Gideon and we're gonna do that in verses seven through 12. Look there for me. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt, from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God, do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the yoke in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior." Now first, before we even get into Gideon, what I love about this is after seven years of ignoring God, they cry out, and what does it say? God responded. God didn't hesitate, he didn't delay, he didn't make uh, Gideon do push-ups or anything, he was there. He responded as soon as he cried out. And now you look at Gideon. Our first impression of Gideon isn't a very favorable one, is it? We see Gideon threshing the wheat inside on a wine press. 
Now, you don't have to be a farmer to know that you don't thresh wheat on a wine press. You crush grapes on a wine press. See, Midian, and you're not even inside, right? When you thresh wheat, you're outside. So as you do it, the wind blows the chafe away. So we get this picture described in this, in this, in this passage of this scared guy hiding out inside, trying to, trying to thresh wheat on a wine press, hiding what he has from, from the Midianites. Just kind of this, 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 this fearful hiding guy we see in this passage. And the Lord comes along and calls him a mighty warrior. So is, is, so is God being sarcastic here? See, I don't think so. I think God sees the person he created in Gideon. I think God sees Gideon for the beautiful, strong, mighty warrior that he is. I think that God sees Gideon for the things that God can accomplish through Gideon. God doesn't see this meek, scared guy hanging out from the Midianites. God sees a mighty warrior. And you know, that is the same for you and for I. You know, it's more times than I think we would like to admit that's the way that we see ourselves, hiding out, afraid of the enemy. That we see, when we look in the mirror, we see this, this brokenness, this, this shallowness, useful, uselessness, right? That there's no way that God can use me. Like we, like we have this distorted image of ourselves. You know, like you go to a, a fun house or to Kennywood and you see those mirrors that make you look all goofy. And that's the way that I think we see ourselves as time is this, just this distorted, bad visual image that we have. But that's not the way that God sees us. And just like Gideon's, we are God's mighty warriors. That's who we are. Because it's in Christ that we can do those things. And in Christ, that's whose we are. And that's the second thing that I want to leave you with today. Is that in Christ, we are safe. We are, with two S's, we are significant. We are secure. We are accepted. We are forgiven. And we are empowered we are empowered to be a mighty warrior for God. We are not useless or scared or meek. We are God's mighty warriors. That's the way God sees you and I. See, but Gideon isn't buying in on this mighty warrior talk. Let's take a look at verse 13, 13 through 24. Gideon says, but sir, don't you love that? Talking to God, calls him sir. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our father told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hands of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my family. 
The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign it's really you talking to me. Please don't go away till I come back. How do you tell God to hold on a second? <laughs> don't go away till I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I'll wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on a rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Right? Gideon realized what's going on finally. He realized it was the angel of the Lord. He exclaimed, ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Right? He's afraid he's going to die. But the Lord said to him, peace. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abizrites. So we see at the beginning of this passage, Gideon saying, hold on one second, God. If you were Mr. Awesome, where have you been the last seven years? We have been beaten into the dirt by these Midianites. You're nowhere to be found. Then out of the blue, you show up seven years later and you call me a mighty warrior. What, what is going on? And I love this. Look at verse 14 again. It says, the Lord turned to him. So if the Lord turned to him, that means he was turned away from him. So the Lord's probably got his back to Gideon. Gideon's running his mouth about wondering where he's at. He says that the Lord turns to him and says, what? Go in the strength you have to save Israel out of many hands. Am I not sending you? Can you see God toe to toe, face to face with Gideon saying, am I not sending you? I am the one telling you to go. And Gideon retorts. He said, God, who am I? Who, who am I? I am the lowest person in my family. Our family is the lowest of the clan. And my clan, Manasseh, is the lowest out of all of them. Do you see my resume? I have nothing to offer you. I am nobody. I am nothing. But what I love is that the Lord does not try to convince him. The Lord does not try to encourage him. The Lord simply says, I will be with you. He is saying, Gideon, don't worry. You're not going alone. I am the Almighty I go with you. And we see that Gideon is ready to go. He builds his altar, basically saying, Lord, I am in, I get it. And that's the third thing that I wanna leave you with this morning about Gideon's story. It says, when God calls us to do something, he is by our side. See, you see as believers, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We're a mighty warrior for God that any decision we make, any battle that we have to make, we don't go alone. 
We've got the Holy Spirit living inside of us, guiding us, counseling us. He goes before us and with us. And that's why we can move with confidence because we know that we don't go alone, that we have the Lord God Almighty inside of us. All right, so Gideon's ready to go. Builds his altar, says, God, I'm all in. Let's see what happens starting in verse 25, 25 to 32. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pool beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of its height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants as did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of town, he did at night rather than in daytime. In the morning, when the men of, town, when the, men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on a newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded to Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's chaos? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal is really a God, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon, Jerub Baal, saying, let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar. Right? So Gideon is ready to roll. He builds his altar. He's ready to be sent out by God into this great battle. And what's the first assignment that God gives him? He said, you got a mess in your family and you need to go clean it up. Your God, your dad is worshiping the Canaanite God Baal. And I can't have that. If I am going to use you the way that I want to use you, you've got to go clean up this issue of worship with inside your own family. And that's why I think that is so important. Before we can go out and scream how great God is from a mountaintop, we better be whispering inside of our heart how great God is. And that our worship of God is focused on him and him alone. You see, there's no shortcuts. There's no way around it. If we can be the mighty warriors that God's created us to be, we have to be singly devoted to the Lord. We can't have other things in our lives distracting us from our God and for what we've been created to do. We can't cling to these things in our life, these sins and these idols, because they distract us from being the people that God's created us to be. And just what Gideon had to do here, we have to do the same thing. We have to knock down our altars that we have set up to the idols in our lives. And that's the fourth Thing I want you to take away that our personal worship must be on God and not God's small g. 
that we've got to knock down the altar of wealth. We've got to knock down the altar of family. We have to knock down the altar of fear. We have to knock down the altar of security. We have to be willing to give up all of those things, push all of those things to the side to have our heart and our innermost being aligned with the God Almighty and God Almighty only if we are gonna be the mighty warriors that he has created us to be. Okay, so Gideon has his house in order. He does what God asks him to do. Now let's see what transpires now, starting in verse 33. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, sounding the Abysrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling, to arm, calling them to arms, and also to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. So they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look. I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed a fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, don't be afraid with it. Don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with the dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. All right, here we go. So Gideon blows the trumpet. They all come running, lined up, ready to do battle. And Gideon says, time out. All right, God, listen. This is a big deal you're asking me to do here. I really need to know that you're behind me on this thing. I'm gonna put this fleece out. If you make it wet and everything else is dry, all right, I'm in. That's all I need. Just give me a little bit more proof. God does it graciously and patiently. He does it. Ready to go, right? Nope, time out. All right, God. I, I saw that. But now, can you do the same thing in reverse this time? Then I'll know. Then I'll really know that I'm ready to go because I really don't feel like going and getting my head kicked in against these Midianites if you're not going with me. Sure enough, God in his patience, he obliges and Gideon is assured that God is with him. And what I love about that exchange is God was simply patient with Gideon. He was kind. He was soft. Right? I like to think of this. He, this was the master working with his servant Gideon, taking the time to fully develop him into the mighty warrior that he needed to be to go fight the battle that God needed him to go fight. And I think God shows you and I the exact same patience today. And that's the fifth thing I want to leave you with, that as we grow in our faith, God is patient with us. See, we're all at a different phase in our spiritual journey. 
Some of us a little further than others. But here's the end of the day is none of us ever end up complete. We are not glorified until the Lord calls us home. And we all have our issues and we all have our struggles as we try to, to learn more about Christ, try to be more like him, be, be more compassionate, more loving, more forgiving. And God is patient with us as we do that. As he leads us, as he directs us, as he shapes us, as he leads us. Just as he did with Gideon right here, right? We know, we've seen the Lord strike down people in the Bible for unfaithfulness. And for lack of faith. But God doesn't do that here. He's patient and kind and he's the same way with you and I. Okay, so Gideon now is assured. It's time for battle. Let's see what happens. Chapter 7, verse 1. Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that their own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remain. Gideon's got to be like, you've got to be kidding me. You make the fleece wet, you make the fleece dry, you give me 32,000 people and you take 22,000 away. But ah, the Lord's not done yet, is he? But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water. I will sift them for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with these 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go to each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took the provisions and the trumpets to others. Now cha um, chapter eight goes on to tell us that the Midianite army numbered 135,000 people. 135,000 people. That is 450 Midianites for every Israeli soldier. Think about that. God wanted Gideon to take 300 men that drank water like a dog to fight 135,000 menacing Midianites. But that's how God works in our lives. He wanted to make sure with that victory happen that it had nothing to do with the Israelites and it had everything to do with God. That he put this insurmountable obstacle in front of Gideon and the Israelites. And you know what? I think God has earned his PhD in my life doing the exact same thing. And it's probably not that much different from you. How many times have you turned around and said, or got yourself through a situation that I don't know how in the world that I survived that. I don't know how in the world I worked through that in that relationship. But you know how? It was God. 
right? Because through God, all things are possible. Those are Jesus's words. Luke chapter, eight, 20, chapter 18, verse 27, what is impossible, men, is possible with God. See, the story ends like this. In one of the most bizarre battle strategies ever in the history of the world, Gideon and those 300 men went out with trumpets, torches, and jars. Not horses, chariots, and swords. Trumpets, torches, and jars. And in fulfilling his promise to save the people and give victory in Gideon's hand, God created confusion amongst the Midianites and 120,000 of them killed each other and the other 15,000 fled. It was over. God secured his victory and he used an unlikely hero in Gideon to play his role and his almighty accomplishing his will. Think about that. God used the unlikely hero of Gideon to accomplish what God wanted to do. And that leads me to my last point, that the victory is dependent on God and not us. See, at the end of the day, God is God and he is going to accomplish whatever he wants to accomplish. God's goals are not dependent on you and I doing enough good things in our lives. God's goals for his world are not dependent on you and I bringing enough backpacks to the church. God's goals are not dependent upon how much money that you tithe or give away or how much kindness that you do for one another. But don't get me wrong, we certainly want to live God-honoring lives and we should always seek to do everything in the best, following the Lord's leading. But the truth is this, God wants to bring himself glory on the earth. He is not about bringing glory to you and to me. He wants everyone to know who he is and he wants to do it through people who were fully dependent on him, who believes that the Lord goes with him and is willing to do whatever he asks them to do. You see, God doesn't need our approval. God doesn't need our vote of confidence. And if we're truthful, he doesn't even need us. But get this, he desires to accomplish his will through you and through me. God wants to save his people. God wants to save the world through you and me. That like Gideon, we are his mighty warriors. We are an unlikely hero placed in our circumstances for a time such as this. We see it over and over again in scripture. We, we see, saw it in the life of Esther. We saw it in the life of Ruth. We see it in the life of Jonathan. We see it today in the life of Gideon. They stepped up. God blesses obedience. And God wants 
mighty warriors that are fully devoted to him. They're gonna take the hill with him. I love how D.L. Moody puts this. He said, give me 10 men who fear nothing but sin and love nothing but God and I shall change the world. That is exactly what God is saying to you and I. Hate sin. Love nothing but me. And we will change the world. I will save people through you. You are a mighty warrior. You're not a distorted funhouse image. You're not sin. You're not empty. You're not shallow. God doesn't see you that way. God sees you the way he created you. God sees what he can do through your life. And he can accomplish it because our God is able. He chooses to do that through you and through me. Mighty warriors, each and every one of you, because our God is able.